before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you as needy people this morning. Our faith is weak and fragile. Lord, give us faith. Lord, heal those among us that are sick and needy. Lord, we pray for John Reagan's mom, for Karen Anderson, for Charlie Reddit, for Claire Reddit, for Dr. Lynch, for Abby Williams, for Morgan and Wallace Wilson. We lift up J.M. Atkinson to you. We ask for your healing touch on Rick Abernathy's parents, Dick and Diane. Lord, we lift up Maddie Jenkins to you. And Lord, at the same time, we, we celebrate because Hudson Pence is with us again. Father, we, we offer up our needs to you because you listen to us. We ask that you act on our behalf. Not because of any righteousness in our lives, but because you are good and merciful and loving. Lord, we pray for this community. May our church be a light unto them. Because we tell needy sinners the same news that we heard, that Jesus is alive and well today. We pray for our sister church, Grace Community Church in Cordova. We pray for Ashley Doonesbury, their minister. Lord, bless that church. We lift up Mike Ford, the RUF minister at University of Tennessee. Lord, give him a, a faithful ministry of the word, calling the next generation of leaders, calling the next generation of church members. Lord, we pray for Jeff and Katie Saunders, our missionaries in Japan. Sustain them. Lord, we pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, bring justice. Lord, we pray for your church in Ukraine. May this Sunday morning be a good Sunday morning for them as they hear of their good news that their sins are forgiven in Christ and give them hope for the world to come. And Lord, as we draw near to your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. 
sharpen our minds that we may understand and know your truth. Conform our wills to your will. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the past two weeks, we have looked at the gospel. What it means and what it means for us. And two weeks ago, we looked at the gospel according to the Old Testament. We looked at Isaiah 52, where Isaiah proclaims the good news of the gospel of Israel, who will be taken to captivity. And God called them to awaken, for he was before them, ready to redeem them. And he promised them the good news of happiness and salvation and peace. And the salvation he promised would be even better than what their forefathers experienced coming out of Exodus. Last week we looked at the gospel that we have received. God saves sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has provided by his power. God has fulfilled by his power the gospel through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Everything, as B.B. Warfield tells us, everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's not a theory of faith. It's not irrational. It's based on historical, factual evidence. Christ is not dead. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are to be most pitied. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then one day he will deliver the kingdom over to the Father. He will destroy the final enemy of death. And we have hope of the resurrection of our ones that we have already lost and the future resurrections of our bodies themselves. This week, I want us to see the gospel we confess. God saves sinners through Jesus Christ who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. Our text is Romans 10, 5 through 17. And I, I just want to point out, I have learned so much this week. It took me a day and a half just to choose the text I was going to preach, and then when I finally got here, I spent a day and a half just in the Old Testament trying to understand what Paul is talking about. And I want you to hold tight with me. Because if we don't understand the context of the Old Testament, we won't understand what Paul is trying to teach the church in Rome. Because Paul is trying to teach the church in Rome that God has been faithful to his promises through the gospel. And we are, we are dropping ourselves in the middle of this letter, and it scares me to think of anyone actually preaching through the book of Romans. I'm not going to be able to cover this whole passage this morning. There's, there's, just, there's just too much richness. There's just too much depth. 
And I'm so excited about the women's Bible study coming up because this women's Bible study, in view of God's mercies, Courtney Doctor, in the promotional video for it, says that Romans is rich in theology. The depths of truths about God are everywhere, but at its core, Romans is about the gospel. The gospel of God through the power of salvation for everyone who believes that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and is freely offered to everyone who hears it. This is good news. And when we jump into Romans 10, Paul is trying to teach his fellow Jew who lives in Rome about Christ. Because at the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Paul takes this grand narrative story and puts Jesus at its center. It is Jesus who the prophets promised. It is Jesus that we anticipated the root of Jesse, the son of David, whose God would establish his kingdom forever. It is Jesus who rose from the dead, ending the old age and bringing in the new. John Stott wisely says, if the gospel, or he says, the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. Christ is the center of the gospel. Christ is our confession. Our confession is something that we need, something outside of us, because our sin is so great and so deep, so blinding, so deadly, that we need saving. And God sent us a Savior. With this in mind, there are three things I want us to see in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 21. The first is that the gospel as it compares to law. The second is the gospel as it confesses Christ. And the third, the gospel as it confronts the hearer. The gospel as it compares to law, the gospel as it confesses Christ, and the gospel as it confronts the healer. Gandhi was a good man. He had a heart and soul for the impoverished people of India. He led through nonviolent resistance that fueled the independence of the Indian people. He fought for the poor. He spoke for women's rights. He advocated for truth. He was a vegetarian. I mean, you can trust all vegetarians, right? On January 3rd, 1948, he was assassinated and viewed as a martyr. And everyone said he lived such a great and righteous and good life that if Anyone to be, would be called a Christian that didn't claim to be a Christian, it would be Gandhi. But listen to what Gandhi says about Christ himself. He says, Jesus was a martyr. He embodied a sacrifice, a, a sacrificial life, and he was a divine teacher. 
but he was not a perfect man. His death on the cross was a great example for the world to follow. But what he said, I do not believe, if it has anything beyond his sermon on the mount. If we only had Jesus' teaching about the Sermon on the Mount, then yes, I would say that I'm a Christian. And in Gandhi's own words, he would follow after Christ if you only told him what to do. Because he believed that what it meant to be a Christian was to be a good person, to try hard, to have a good moral compass and to live like Jesus. And what Paul wants us to see here in Romans 10 is this is a very similar mindset to the Jews who lived in Rome. And Paul actually compares two types of righteousness. He compares a righteousness by works through the law and a righteousness by faith that comes through the hearing of the gospel. In these few verses, in the first four verses, Paul quotes the Old Testament five times. And as our Westminster Confession teaches us, that if we come to a hard part of Scripture, that is, it's hard to understand, we must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's using the rule of faith. Because in verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5. And he does this again in Galatians 3. But the hard part about Leviticus 18, 5 is that Jews in Rome are misunderstanding and misapplying its meaning. He's trying to come alongside the Romans and walk along with them and tell them what they aren't seeing. The law was never designed to save them by what they did. The law was to point them to Christ, which is what he says in, verse 10, in chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is pleading with them. You are being excluded from the covenant promises. You have a zeal and a heart for Christ, or you have a, a zeal and a heart for God. But you're missing the essence. You're missing Christ himself. And the Jews were misplacing their intent of the law. They thought in order to be loved by God, they had to be perfect. But Paul, for ten chapters, has shown them no one can be perfect according to the law. He is telling them, Exodus 20 follows Exodus 19. He is telling them Leviticus 18 follows Exodus 12. He says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law only comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest 
apart from the law. The law is only bad, in a sense, if you misuse it and misunderstand it. For the scriptures tell us the law of God is good. The law of the Lord is perfect. Blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Anytime we try to live up to the law, the law should point us to Christ. Because it was never the intention of the law to show us a way of salvation. The purpose of the law was to drive Israel to their knees and say, I need a Savior. I can't do it on my own. And this is the point that Paul is trying to make. If you misinterpret the law, if you misunderstand the law, you will read it as do this and live. And if you, do, and if you believe this, then you will come before the throne of God and you will hear him say, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. This interpretation of the law should be damning because it offers us no hope. But this is what Paul says in the next verse. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. And here he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 9.4, where God warns Israel not to presume that he's giving them the land because of their faithfulness. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 9.4-6. Just, just listen to it. You don't need to turn there. God says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out, the people in the land, before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possession of the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations and the, the law, the Lord is driving them out. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart or your going in to take the land as possession, but because of the wickedness of the nations. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you a good land to possess it because of your righteousness. You are a stubborn people. Paul is using other Old Testament passages to help them understand Leviticus 18. He's using the rule of faith. And he's also showing them that the law was never meant to save them. And then we get into the rest of verse 6. And he says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is giving a running commentary on Deuteronomy 30, which was our Old Testament reading. And I really hope you read or you listen to that whole passage because it's vital to understand the point that Paul is trying to make. He's saying, who can ascend into heaven? 
to bring Christ down? Who can descend into the abyss to bring Christ back from the dead? The word is near you. It is in your mouth that we might profess and proclaim this gospel. Paul is telling the Jews again, your salvation is not dependent upon you, but upon God's grace. And it speaks of our inability and of our great need. Paul is asking a rhetorical question. Can you bring Christ down? Can you inaugurate your own salvation? The answer, no, we cannot. Can you raise Christ up? The only way that Jesus is raised from the dead is through the power of God himself. We aren't able to do this. God, please save us. The gospel says God has come to conquer our sin. And that is good news because we would never choose him if it was up to us. And Paul also quotes Deuteronomy 13 to reveal that we actually don't need to do this. We don't have the ability, but we also don't have the need to do it. Because in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses is promising the promises, is foretelling the promises of the new covenant. In Deuteronomy 36, he, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Do you hear that language? He's using, it's the same language in Leviticus 18. Do this and you will live. And he's putting the gospel in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you may live. It is dependent upon God's grace. This is the picture that Paul presents. Just as we saw in Isaiah 51, 52, and 53. It is all about God's grace. Christian faith doesn't concentrate on human capabilities. It concentrates on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. There is a vast difference between obeying the law in order to gain God's favor and obeying God's law because we are loved. The Jews were misunderstanding. They were confusing the means with the end. They thought the means and the end was the law itself. But as Paul teaches, the means only pointed us to Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is this. You are saved by works but not your works. You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ, to whom the law pointed. One of my seminary professors once said, a man does not bring coffee to his wife in the morning so that she will love him, although there might be ulterior motives. 
A man brings wife brings his wife a cup of coffee because he loves her. Are we living as the Roman as the Roman Jews? Are you trying to earn salvation by what you do? Through your goodness, through your good deeds, through your faithfulness, through your you fill in the blank. You know your hearts. Or you do, do you come by faith resting in the work of Jesus Christ? In the gospel, we are not called to work harder. We are called to what? This is what Paul says in the next verse. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on his name, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word is near you. Again, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. It's in your, it's in your mouth. It's near your heart. God has fulfilled his promises. He has brought the gospel near to us through the gospel this is the message that the, um, the apostles preached. We don't have to go look for it. It's here. That is what we do every Lord's Day morning. We preach the gospel, and it's here. Because God is faithful to us. And he came looking for us. Because he loves us. This, it, this phrase, is near you, is a Hebrew idiom, which means it's, it's in your grasp. You don't have to do anything to take hold of it. It's, it's almost as if you just lean forward, it's going to hit you in the face. And it's also not so difficult that you can't understand it. You don't need a Ph.D. in theology to understand the gospel. Moses says in verse 14, you can do this because the Lord has changed and circumcised your heart. This is the same for us today. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, this is the promise of the gospel. You are saved from your sins. And notice Paul doesn't say two things. He's not saying that you can confess and not believe. He's not saying that you can believe and not confess. R.C. Sproul says one, one of the great dangers in this church today is that we are so zealous to win people for Christ 
and to persuade them of the truth of the gospel, we are no longer satisfied with just a proclamation of the gospel, of the confession of the gospel, and to allow the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts and to pierce hearts, and we try to add to the gospel. We add things like altar calls and hands raising and ask someone, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? We think we need to do something to make sure that it sticks, but that is not what the gospel teaches. Those things in themselves are not wrong. Unless you think, unless I've done these, I will not be saved. Your profession of faith alone does not justify you. It's only if you confess and have true belief in your heart. I have had someone come into my office here and say, I don't remember praying the sinner's prayer. Do I know that I'm saved? And it broke my heart. Because she loved Jesus. She understood her sin, but she thought she had to do a work to be saved. And I asked her, do you believe in Jesus? Is he the Lord of your life? And do you believe? believe he really rose from the dead and she said yes I said you are saved from your sin you don't have to do anything because Christ has done it for you this must get into our bloodstream Paul's main point is that the one who believes and confesses that Jesus has resurrected. And here he's using the resurrection as um, a, a phrase to, for the whole thing. If you believe in the resurrection, you believe in the perfect life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. Paul is saying, if you believe that Jesus did what he was supposed to do and promised that he would do, you will be saved. And he asks us to confess it with our mouths, and to believe it in our hearts. And that's for everyone. It's for every single one of you. The gospel is on your lips. It is in your heart because the spirit this morning is moving in power. There's nothing I can say from this pulpit that will change your heart. It is an act of God by his grace that we confess him. And if you confess and believe, you will never be put to shame. The gospel is a free offer. It's free. Without money, it's free. It's the story about Jesus, that he came to sinners and took away their sin. And when the gospel is preached, we experience, we hear, we live out the narrative of Scripture. That God is good and God is faithful to his people.
the gospel as it compares to law, the gospel as it confesses Christ, and lastly, the gospel as it confronts the hearer. In verses 14 to 15, we see a logical chain in Paul's mind that's pretty straightforward. The only way to be saved is to call upon Christ's name. The only way to call on Christ's name is to believe the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel. And the only way to hear the gospel is to be told the gospel. Typically, this is used um, in many missions conferences for the importance of missions. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is important for missions. But it also, but unfortunately, that doesn't take into the context what Paul is saying. Because remember, we're in the middle of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And what Paul's saying is that this has been freely offered to you, those who have rejected Christ. See, the gospel confronts all hearers. You cannot just sit there and let it pass over you like it never happened. You have to ask yourself, do you believe? Do you believe in Christ? Because God has sent his gospel to you. He's proclaimed salvation and peace through the blood of Christ. Faith comes by hearing And God is faithful. And God does call us to send the good news. For he's calling the nations to himself. God has provided his church with faithful gospel preachers. With evangelists and missionaries. And he's also provided the church with Ordinary means of grace. Paul is warning us just as he warned Israel. You can have great zeal for God, but you can miss Christ. You can try to earn your salvation, but you'll miss Christ. You can try to say, I believe in Jesus, but in your heart, miss Christ. And if you've missed Christ, you've missed the gospel that we confess as a church. But if you believe in Christ, this is why we come to the Lord's Supper. That is the admission. That is is the ticket to get in. Have you confessed Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead? And if that's true for you, then we get to come to this table and we are nourished. Our faith becomes deeper and richer because guess what God does here? He comes to needy sinners and says, I'm right here. Come to me by faith. Let's pray.